Well, good morning to you all. Well, our text this week is from Ephesians 5, verse 19. If you could please turn there now. I started out our last sermon on this part of Ephesians with the observation that Paul's instruction to be filled with the Spirit in verse 18 is seen by some important theologians as the most important verse in the whole of the New Testament. And today we will begin to explore why that is so in terms of practical day-to-day living. In fact, from here on in Ephesians, pretty much everything we will read about leads us back to verse 18 because what we will be reading about will be what Christian living ought to look like both to those who see it and to those who live it. There are two life possibilities for those who live to look like Christians. Firstly, they may do so merely as an act of discipline and will. And if that is so, then they have entirely missed the point because that's just mere legalism, an attempt to gain entry to heaven by our own works. And the whole of the Old Testament proves that that way will never work because works only hide sin. It can never cure it. The other option is that they live that way because they are spiritual, genuinely transformed from deep inside by God and so cannot help but live by the power within them. And this is the genuine article, the one who has the sure and certain hope of heaven thanks to their salvation through Jesus. This is the one we ought to aspire to because this is the one that our Heavenly Father hopes we will be and this is the only one that makes eternity something to look forward to. So, let's read our verses from Ephesians 5. I'm going to read a bit of a chunk from verse 15 to verse 21. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine and which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So what is the first thing that we ought to encounter when we meet someone who is filled with the Spirit? Getting there, how, how might we experience that joy? Well, it's words, isn't it? It's words of the Spirit. It would be so incredibly helpful if people came from birth with some sort of identifying mark in their foreheads that proved without doubt what sort of person they were. And then we would always know what kind of individual we're dealing with and we could adjust our expectations accordingly. Hey, look, that's a politician over there. Beware. Unfortunately, they don't. And so it's mostly from words that we make up our minds what sort of animal we're going to be speaking to. There are many scriptures that tell us that a special work of renewal has been done by God within those he has saved. And so we shouldn't be surprised then to encounter a new type of language and attitude from people who are so blessed. Second Corinthians says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And of course, that includes our speech. In fact, we shouldn't be surprised when we discover these things in ourselves if we are saved, because we aren't distant spectators. There isn't one kind of promise 
for other people and another for ourselves, we all share in the same gift and the same unworthiness for the giving of the gift. However, inasmuch as that gift is most certainly there, it does need our cooperation to release its potential. And please don't ask me why this is so, because it seems like it would have been a lot easier if God had just done some sort of miracle to make us as perfect indeed as he has in spirit. But no human knows the reason that God does things in a certain way. So all we know is that in this instance, his will is realized as a requirement for us to work with him to release the potential has been set within us, and this is why we're reading what we're reading today. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is showing us what we need to do to release the promise of the same Spirit within us. So we start by speaking the words of God, not to ourselves, but to those of us who are around us. Why do you think that might be important? Let me try to illustrate Last weekend, I took a short trip down to the South Island using the Bluebridge Ferry to get there and back. Now, ships absolutely fascinate me because they're so huge, but they're made by people. And the ferry that we were on was impressive enough, but I saw from an information board inside that it just weighs under a little bit under 8,000 tonnes. And I say only because there are ships that weigh more than 20 times as much and are more than 400 metres long. How such a thing is constructed is a marvel. How is it that human hands can do such a thing? And and I'm a man who works with his hands, and I know what small things they're capable of, and I just can't imagine using them to to make something that size. So how is it done? Well, I'll tell you, it's one of the main secrets of human achievement. It is a thing called division of labor. And it basically means that if we take an army of people and we give them just even a tiny part, well, even with the most hugest of projects, well, we can do them. We can, tru- we can build truly enormous things. And you know, as Christians, we are building something huge too. It's called the church. And that's not this building, but it's a body of believers in the one true God saved by the Lord Jesus and fueled by his Holy Spirit. And the church is the biggest thing that the world will ever see. Every single one of us here can participate in its construction if we speak the words of God to one another, because they are truth, the only truth. They encourage us to service, to love, to become more like Christ. They give witness to the glory of God, and they draw others into the community of the Lord. The secret to the growth of the church is not a secret at all because it's really very obvious. It doesn't lie in special programs that are designed by world-renowned leaders and it won't come either from the radical contemplations of some hairy hermit on a lonely hillside in the outer Hebrides. Why should it not be blindingly apparent that the growth of our most precious body will only come from the book? The most printed book in the whole history of the world God's only book, the Bible. God's Spirit within us must result in God's Word being spoken out of us and His Word, we know, will not return void. It will do its work if we do our work. So, 
What should we do? Now, one thing is for sure, if we have a look at the sentence construction of, of this verse, we will see that the instruction to speak is written in the present tense. And that, is, that means that it's supposed to be a believer's lifestyle. I will always be doing this work now, whenever now may be, which is factually all the time. What will I be doing? I will always be using the wisdom of God's words, written in Scripture to encourage, to exhort, and yes, sometimes to rebuke my fellow believers. Does this mean that I will exclusively speak from the Bible? Approach me whilst lying underneath your car to inquire how the job is going and be repulsed by? In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. No. There is the daily business of life to be done, and they need us to be able to talk about normal things, like changing the baby and making dinner and putting the dustbin out on a Wednesday evening. These circumstances do not need scriptures. But there are lots of other moments when we do need them. And in those circumstances, is it better to render our own opinion about something, I think? Or is it better to turn to God's wisdom and say, I believe? What does Scripture say? 1 Corinthians 14. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Let all things be done for edification. What does that mean? Well, it just means for improvement, for instruction or enlightenment. Isn't that exactly what using Scripture in our speech will produce? One thing is for sure, though. We will not be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs unless we have taken the trouble to read and learn them in the first place. And of course, you know, I can take the superior position here because I actually know the whole Bible off by heart. Ask me anything. This is a subject that's pretty much guaranteed to make us uncomfortable, isn't it? Because nearly all of us have work to be done in this area. So, let's get to it. I spent some time talking about the importance of holy speech to the body of the church. But of course there's also a very important personal angle to be considered. Let me try and create a scenario in your head. Think about the grandeur of a mountain. Think about the first time you saw Ruperu with snow on the peak. Or maybe the glowing reds and oranges of a sunset. Or maybe for you a special thing is the delicate colours and smells of a flower. Have you got some images in your head now? Well, would, you, would they cause you to think that God is a a dull and boring sort of person? Well, would they? No. Of course not. His creation shows us who he is so that the word boring, <laughs> it could never ever be used to describe him. Every one of these images shouts to us that God is vibrant and exciting. He takes pleasure in what he has made. It brings him joy. And this is the person who lives inside our hearts a joyful, vibrant, powerful person. And he is not there merely as, as an observer. Because the Spirit lives 
with us. He guides us. He instructs us. He helps us every moment of every day. And we know that he is there. And when we do not stifle his effect on us because of, say, social convention or sin or selfishness, what burns within cannot help but blaze without. This kind of fire cannot be contained by a mere smile or twinkling eyes because there is only one avenue of true expression and that is jubilant song and praise. And this is what our scripture today is talking about when it refers to singing and making melody in your heart. It tells us that there is personal joy to be found through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Deep, deep joy. Now, with regard to the singing thing, I have a special revelation for you here today, which is seldom publicly made. Okay? I don't know if you realize it, but this is, this is really special for you. Are you ready? Are you sure? Good. It is this. God is tone deaf. Yes, it's true. He doesn't care how good or bad your singing is because he listens to the song of your heart. And it is that song that he longs for and desires, a heart that belongs to him, serves him, worships him, and glorifies him. God welcomes your song and he loves to hear them, no matter what you or others may think of your voice. So don't hold back. When the Spirit moves you with all of your heart, sing. And sadly here in New Zealand there's often a twofold handicap to heartfelt praise. Because first of all we have our famous tall poppy syndrome. No one wants to stick out for fear that they will be pulled down and no one wants to see anyone sticking out for fear that they themselves will somehow be found lacking in comparison to the sticker outer. And then there is the stiff, stiff upper lip of our forefathers for those of us who have British ancestry. You know, it's terribly vulgar to behave that way. And so we hold back our song and we miss out on the Spirit's blessing. Is this the right thing to do? Let's ask ourselves some questions then. Do you think that God likes song? Scripture must inform us. So here's a passage from the book of Revelation. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on a sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. Well, let's remember that this scene is set in heaven, the very seat and center of God's will. Absolutely nothing happens there that isn't pleasing to Him. This isn't a group of radicals who've dreamed up some left of field of scheme on their own to try to impress the boss. This is the saints of God giving the Lord what He enjoys and deserves. Yes, and yes, God loves singing. Next, do our songs have power? 
Or are they just merely a passing noise? Well, here's a mangled metaphor for you. If a man sings in the forest and there isn't a woman to hear him, will he still be flat? Well, let's look at some scriptures then. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That's from Colossians 3, Acts 16. But at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. So here we have some scriptures that show us that singing does indeed have power. Power to bring wisdom, power to teach and correct, power to break doors and chains even. Singing releases grace and the power of God. It sets the prisoner free in more ways than one. I believe that many of us sense that something is lacking in the church today since it does not contain enough evidence of the power that it indisputably contains. And this is apparent to both believers and non-believers. The latter ask, where is the passion that this belief, you, this belief you say you have ought to be brother to? Although it would be unreasonable to say that singing is the whole of the problem, since the church has many, many problems, it is certainly a part. Whatever it is that is holding us back from freedom to sing, be it fear of standing out in a crowd or a voice like an insincorator full of spoons, yes, some of us have that, is robbing us from a special type of communion from God, that God has actually designed and tended for us to have and enjoy. And gentlemen, I want to speak particularly to you because we are particularly lacking in this department and we don't have good role models either I mean just watch the All Blacks mumble their way through our national anthem for example it's quite pathetic moreover the same thing that holds us back from singing it also restrains us from witnessing to the power of Christ in other ways we do not speak of him because we are afraid and we know we should so may I please inspire you in this one area to try to make a change. Sing. No, not the Bee Gees or worse, Abba. Sing the songs of God. Sing them in the shower. Sing them in the kitchen. Sing them and speak them whenever and wherever you can. And then come and tell me that you are not inspired and uplifted. First of all, sing them together with other believers because there is such power in this. Two years ago, I went to a conference in Sydney. And I don't know the exact number, but there were thousands of us singing great hymns together to praise God. And I'm not ashamed to say that this experience moved me to tears, to the point where I was actually unable to sing. And even thinking about it now, it chokes me up a little bit. So, was that just my own feelings or was it the joy of the Lord that did that? Well, you can ask my wife. I am very often the most irritatingly uptight and reserved person that you will ever meet, particularly in a crowd. 
And so I'm convinced that it can only be the latter. The Spirit moved in me on that day, and I would certainly like more of that. How about you? Amen. Let me hasten to add that this is not something that's just a passing emotion, but it's something far more profound. The Greek word that is used for heart in this text is the word cardia, not cardigan. And although we still use it today as in cardiac and cardiologist with reference specifically to the physical organ, as used in scripture it refers to the seat and center of human life. The heart is the center of the personality and it controls the intellect, the emotions and the will. Absolutely no outward obedience is of the slightest value unless the heart turns to God. Our heart is the wellspring of our spiritual life. So while cardia does represent the inner person, the seat of motives and attitude, the center of personality, in scripture it represents much more than emotion or feelings. It also includes the thinking processes and particularly the will. For example, in Proverbs we are told, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And Jesus asked a group of scribes, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? So we must understand that Paul was writing about the heart, not just as a pump, but the control center of mind and will as well as emotion. Christian joy is rooted in a deep experience of adequacy and confidence in spite of the circumstances around us. This kind of joy is not a thermometer. It's a thermostat. Instead of rising and falling with the circumstances to say, I am joyful because, it allows those saved by Christ to say, I am joyful despite, so that the believer can be joyful even in the midst of pain and suffering. And Paul expresses this anchored state so well in Philippians 4. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Now, I'll be very honest with you here. When I read or hear declarations like this, I often find find myself saying, well, that's all very well for you, Paul. That's nice. But how did you actually get to that exalted state? What did you do? He doesn't actually detail what he did to learn his contentedness here, which isn't terribly helpful if we want to be the same, is it? Now, of course, if we spend just a moment reflecting on the matter, I'm sure that will come up with a whole bunch of things that will work, such as prayer and learning scripture verses, for example. But here's another idea from our topic today. It occurs to me that although in modern terms the possibility of going around permanently singing to yourself seems a little close to a form of mental illness, it can, it can actually be tremendously helpful. I mean, is it better to have those little mental conversations that go round and round in your head about what you'd really like to say to the fellow in the blue car who cut you off at the roundabout rather than a song praising God that reminds us of his grace and love? and also calms us down. I know which one works for me, and I'm certain that will work for everyone in this building. 
Most times, our encounters with the Holy Spirit are quite ordinary simply because they deal with ordinary things, like the fellow in the blue car. However, there are moments when our meeting with the Spirit's joy goes far beyond being merely content to the sublime. And these are often found in the company of fellow believers praising God in unity. These are moments to treasure because I suspect that they will give us just the tiniest glimpse of what it's going to be like in heaven to be there with fellow believers praising God, fulfilled completely by our Heavenly Father. What we have read today is a sure path to the satisfaction we all crave. The song of our hearts, fueled by its union and inclination to the Holy Spirit resident there, sings both to us and to others the hope of heavenly wholeness, an end to the sin and pain and suffering of this world. It's peculiar, isn't it, that even though we have this gift and the knowledge of its worth, that we most often choose to stifle it in favour of social acceptance. Yet we are not called to be socially acceptable. The Bible reminds us of this when it says that we are to be salt and light, a peculiar people, to not hide our light under a bushel. You are a chosen priesthood, a royally, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. What kind of praise do you think our Lord deserves and desires? Hidden? Or open. So, let's speak out and sing out the Holy Spirit who dwells so richly within us to bring the light of God to a steadily darkening world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for setting him within us. Thank you, Lord, that we are reminded of your joy and vitality. Lord, you brought light and love and beauty and laughter. Those are part of you and you set yourself within us. Lord, I pray that we would tap into those things to set aside what society has told us is right, to be that peculiar people, to witness to you, to bring more people into your kingdom and to bring you glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.